I don't remember if I was barefoot last year. <laughs> I'm pretty sure if if this is not the first podcast I've recorded barefoot, this is the second. <laughs> I feel like at the beach you kind of have to be like. Because, you know, everything at the beach, you're constantly going in and out between, like, sandy and wet and dry, and it's hot. So you, your only choices are barefoot or full shoes, I think. Like, everything in between is, is not as good. Like, you a flip-flop man? Not really. I, they don't stay on. Like, I'm, I'm big about, like, walking. Like, I take long dog walks. I take bike rides. And they just don't stay on enough for that. Like, unless you get the kind that are basically sandals. Where they have, like, a little back strap. But that's, at that point, that's a sandal. I like a flip-flop. I do feel, though, that... Uh tiring because you got you got to do a little uh curl with your toes to yeah, keep them on like kind of all the time and you uh you know this is a, a bicycle town uh i i terrified of riding a bicycle with flip-flops because i feel like i'm i'm on the verge of scraping <laughs> my toes up yeah it's i mean like it's not quite as bad as like riding a motorcycle with flip-flops would be but it's not that much better uh my show's been very erratically <laughs> More erratic than usual, publishing-wise. I just posted 258 <laughs> yesterday, but I need another July episode. And I like to do these shows here in person, so here we are recording again uh, in the middle of the season when there's not much news. Yeah, well, we say that. Like, every summer yeah. we say, like, oh, it's you know, there's not much news in July and August, so we better stretch it out and you know, do like, Q&A episodes, like, yeah. as, you said, as you did and stuff like that. But it's like, actually, a lot of stuff seems to be happening every summer. Yeah. Um, one of the things I definitely wanted to talk about before we get into rambling territory is I wanted to talk about the uh, purported 16-inch MacBook Pro because there was a – I'm sure you saw it, uh, but there was a report out of the supply chain that – I think it still suggested that it was coming in October, which is a little weird, um, but that it was going to start at $3,000. Which would be really weird because right now the 15-inch MacBook Pro starts at $2,400. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much we can trust rumors from like supply chain sources about pricing. I think I I have I had two thoughts on that. One, why trust the supply chain on that? They don't know names either. Yeah, right? like pricing and naming, it's it's so well guarded the right. vast majority of the time. Like. There, there's almost always pricing guesses about, or you know, alleged pricing leaks or rumors before new products are announced, and they're usually wrong. Like, mm. if you look at like the track record of Apple rumors, I feel like pricing is one of those areas where we take a lot of guesses about pricing and we're wrong a lot. The other way they could do it though is it could be three thousand dollars, and they could just Tim Cook it by keeping the twenty four hundred dollar one around, and so there'd still be a twenty four hundred dollar. 15-inch MacBook Pro, but it's, it would be like a year-old model. But that seems like a weird way to go with the MacBook Pro. It's, you know, that's like a MacBook Air move. Well, also, if we look at the rumors holistically, <laughs> if we look at, like, you know, all the rumors that are going around about this, you know, upcoming alleged generation of laptops, I think I think they all seem to agree on, on one big thing, that the butterfly keyboard is not long for this world, right. which I am, like, dancing on its grave already, even though it's not dead yet. I, I, as you know, I, I couldn't possibly be more happy that the butterfly keyboard appears, by all accounts, to be going away pretty soon. Um, so, if you think about, like, if they did keep around the old 15-inch, what are they going to do? Have that be like the only butterfly keyboard in the lineup yeah. for a while, or like have you know if if they if they take the current Air and maybe keep it around at a cheaper price point next year? 
or at least like when, when the alleged new scissor switch air comes out, yeah. depending on who you believe, either in September, October, or 2020, <laughs> depending on all the different rumors. Uh, allegedly, you know, there's going to be a new MacBook Air and new 13 inch and new 16 inch. Then, if that's actually true, sometime in the next year, then there will be no new models with butterfly keyboards unless they keep around some of the current ones at lower prices. And it would just, it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense if they would do that like only for the 15 inch and not for anything else like the Air. Right. And it seems especially problematic that the 15 inch, which is a high end computer that's bought in large quantities by businesses and by a lot of their pro market. It would be weird to have to if they're going to go through all this hassle to get rid of the butterfly keyboard because of its problems. Why would they keep it on such an important, wide, widely used model? It, it doesn't seem that doesn't make sense. So I think the 16 inch is it, and the pricing rumors uh, I don't give a lot of credibility to. Yeah, I think that so. being said, like it, it wouldn't be totally out of the ordinary for Apple to release a new generation of an important product that costs significantly more than its predecessor. Uh, it would be not well received. But that doesn't mean they won't do it, and that they, they do it all the time. So I think while I don't believe pricing rumors usually, I also wouldn't rule out the possibility that this new laptop might be $3,000, and that might just be the new starting price of the, you know, the 15-inch class laptop, which is now 16 inches. That's totally plausible. Apple does that kind of stuff all the time. And you know, another angle I was thinking about was Apple does – I mean, maybe this doesn't matter because I think they sell an absolute ton of the base model configurations relative to any customized configs. But with the drop in flash storage pricing that's going on across the industry and they just drop their prices, Apple might just be forced by market pressure to make less on their upgrade components hmm. that they as they used to. Hmm. And so maybe they are going to make up for that lost margin by just raising the base price. On all the models i guess i can't really think of anything that would make the price jump up that much i mean presumably well, apple well right <laughs> I, but i can't you, <laughs> you know, don't need a reason right i think it's a marketing decision not yeah. not in uh cost of goods decision i mean presumably the display is going to be at least slightly more expensive because they're calling it a 16 inch display so it's going to be bigger than the 15.6 inch display 15.4 i think 15.4 yeah. uh uh Maybe I don't even know. I don't. I don't know how many of the details of the screen came out. But the other thing that would be nice and would justify, to some degree, a price increase would be if it goes to truly native Retina resolution. Yeah, actual two X of, right. of what the default setting is, right. which it has never, which it has had when the default setting was lower up, up until right. twenty sixteen. Right. Uh, but yeah, now, like yeah, because like right now they ship it by default in the scaling mode. Right. And. I, I mean, it just feels off for the highest end laptop in the lineup to, yeah. to be scaled. Like the the 15 inch non Retina in going up until 2012, the non Retina 15 inch. The last couple of years of it, they offered this high res option and a matte option, by the way, for like 200 dollars extra. It was, a, it was a small price increase, and it was instead of being 1440 across, it was right. 1680 across. Right. And when the 2012 Retina version came out. It went. It was only the fourteen forty natively, but you could use these software scaling modes to simulate higher resolutions. So it was like, okay, that's nice. Like you know, good job. You know that you can you can get higher resolutions. But if you were accustomed to the sixteen eighty point size, you were actually getting worse visual quality because it was rendering it into like an off screen buffer and like shrinking it down to fit the actual pixels of the screen. So everything was like a little bit blurrier. And it's not a massive difference, but you you can tell it does look a little bit worse. And then 
what you know what made it i think almost you know misleading and and i wouldn't say criminal but certainly offensive to a nerd like us who cares about like image quality is that starting from the 2015 macbook and then the 2016 usb-c generation of laptops they increased the uh, default resolution from what the panels actually were to one step above so they increased the the apparent screen real estate to 1680 right. at, at 2x now right on the 15 but they didn't actually increase the number of pixels so i almost feel like they kind of cheated yeah. like, they, like they, they tried to make it look like the screens got better and they didn't yeah. and and what's disappointing is that so far the ming chi kuo rumor about the 16 inch has its pixel size pinned at something that would suggest that they haven't actually right. increased that again yeah, so, i couldn't remember if that was part of the rumor yeah it was like the current one is like 2880 and the new one i think is 3072 something like that so it's so it's like it's not enough proportionally i don't think to make it seem like they're actually doing like a true 2x of what the default setting is so it's if that rumor is true then it sounds like they haven't actually fixed this problem but this is actually one thing i um when i had a briefing uh with some apple people uh last year i actually brought this up specifically as an issue i'm like you got to fix this for the next generation because like this it, it to me i understand making that kind of compromise on something like a macbook air where it's it's a lower end product, you're doing it to hit a price point. The buyers might not might not care as much if the screen is a little bit blurrier than it could be at its default setting. Fine, that makes sense. But on the MacBook Pro, where you care so much about this amazing screen, and they talk and they, and they put so much work into the amazing screen, they have this amazing color and contrast and detail and the finishing and everything, like and, you know, possibly higher refresh rates coming down the road. They have they put so much effort into the display, and on their highest end laptop. They can't make it actual to actual true two X pixels like that. I don't any argument they have for that. I don't think it's a good argument. Yeah, I don't think so either. Especially because they do it right on the desktops, right? And they have since since twenty fourteen when the when the Retina iMac came out, right? Well, and it's even in the name. They even call it five K. I mean, they, yeah. they couldn't call it the Retina five K iMac if it didn't really have five <laughs> K pixels. Exactly. So well, like we know they can do it, and so I just I I wish they would. What else is that we have news wise? How about these? Uh, how you doing with the betas? This oh summer. my god! <laughs> I, I listened to the AT. Uh, I listened to ATP. I don't know if it was last week or the week before, but you 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 said more or less you're giving up on getting anything other than the an, an iPhone update to Overcast out by day one. Yeah, and and I'm I'm actually I'm doing things like I I spent the summer instead of doing like all iOS 13 and Catalyst and uh, and independent watchOS stuff, instead of rewriting all my stuff in Swift UI and everything, which is like kind of what I thought I would be doing like the first day of WBDC when we heard all this stuff. I'm like, great, this is going to be a packed summer. I'm going to be doing all this stuff with all the new betas. Yeah, then I got the betas, and it turns out they're really still pretty rough, still pretty early. Um, I, I don't even want to touch Catalyst or Catalina anymore. Like I did the first two betas of that, and I'm like, all right, new, nope, I'm done with that for a little while. And uh, and even like even the API stuff, iOS 13 is still super rough. It's hard to tell. Like when I when I make something with the UI of it, it's hard to tell wh- whether any bugs are my fault or the OS's fault. Uh, and and so I've just decided, you know what? I'm just going to focus on underlying like under the hood changes this summer that are preparing the way for me to do more of that stuff in like a month or two. Yeah. And so like, like like for instance, like last week, I, I spent most of the past week um, writing the sync engine differently. Uh, because the sync engine, the, the way it's been doing it from like 1.0 until now, has some limitations, and more importantly, it has some really incredibly intense memory usage uh, when you're doing a, a full resync to the servers when you have a lot of a lot of podcasts. 
And at first, I thought, well, who's going to have more than like you know twenty, thirty podcasts subscribed? And then I looked, at the, I looked at my own account. I already and I have ninety, and I'm like, all right, maybe maybe this is a more common than I think. And and I look, you know, a lot of you just have like two hundred, three hundred. I think the the peak is something like six hundred to a thousand. Wow. And and that, that is, it isn't like you know one person who has that. It's like multiple. You know, it's not that uncommon to have a couple hundred podcast subscriptions in Overcast, especially after you've been using it for like five years. So the problem is that kind of sync engine won't fit in the Apple Watch's constraints. So when I want to make an independent watch app, which I do want to do, I can't bring the sync engine over until I change it. So now I've spent the last week like doing sync in a pretty different way that should be much better and changing the server to support it and everything else. So that's the kind of work I'm doing now because I don't need to be using the beta SDK to do pretty much any of that. And once this fall comes around, I can actually like install the GM versions of these tools and hope they're at all ready to go and hope for the love of God whoever's writing the iOS mail app has gotten their act together. Oh God, mail is so bad. Have you using are you mailing betas? Uh I have it on my old iPhone ten uh, and I have it on an iPad mini and it was it, I got so freaked that I've because I saw stories from people who were saying that I'm not even running it on my main device, but it's screwed up my iCloud or my notes or something. Yeah, and, that's the scariest. And so I and I just don't feel it. Does not it's not useful for me to try it with a throwaway iCloud account. Like if I'm not actually yeah. using my actual data, what's the point? So right, exactly. I, I'm not really doing it. What's wrong with Mail on iOS? Um, my understanding is that they they rewrote. So iOS 13 brought a lot of. Um, a lot of new changes to some of the basic UI components that a lot of iOS apps use, namely uh, table views and collection views and like how they manage their data, how like when a new item comes in, you can animate it in instead of just like refreshing the whole table as like, you know, a single frame. Um, and they made that easier and they changed the APIs around that and, and they added, they introduced a bunch of new stuff to just make all that stuff better and easier to use. And so my understanding is they rewrote mail um, entirely using collection view and using these some of these new data source uh, methods. And it's really early, I would say, to try to be kind to people writing it. Like, if you use the mail app on the phone, I would not recommend installing the iOS 13 betas uh, mm-hmm. because there's just all sorts of, like, bugs that you might have if, if it was, like, your very first... It's, it sounds like they kind of rewrote a lot of that UI from scratch, and it shows... Because you'll have bugs like like in table views, you'll have cell reuse bugs where like as you're scrolling, the title of one message will be repeated on all on all the cells in the right. screen, or, or like they'll all say no sender a, a, instead of the actual sender of the mail. Or you'll have rows that are inserted that are empty, <laughs> like problems like that. Uh, so it's yeah, if you use iOS Mail, don't install the betas yet. I think it's going to be interesting because it it, it sounds to me like. Um, Apple's behind for where they really should be to to ship the iPhone, a new iPhone in early September. I mean, we're like five weeks out. Um, but I don't know that they would uh, hold the iPhone hardware up for an extra two or three weeks of bug polish and finish just to do it. Like, I wouldn't be surprised if they announced the phone on schedule, but maybe it doesn't ship until the end of September. They still have the early September event, but you know, if it's buggy, if iOS is buggy, that is when reviewers get the phones, right? Yeah. It, we get them right after the event. It it just seems like it is, it, you know, 
they're playing with fire this year because yeah. that, that hardware date is sort of set in stone. And I don't even I don't think they would even delay the shipping of the phones for software because you know a, a lot of their products you know the, the volumes that that they, that they might sell in additional two weeks and a quarter might not matter so much to their financials but the phone matters a lot right. like if they miss two weeks of sales because the software is a little bit rough right. that's going to hurt them in the financials in ways that are probably not worth it I'm guessing they they ship the phone on the same day they were planning to no matter what right and they just make the software as good as they can make it by that day and just hope for the best yeah. Um, you know, maybe they're going to delay the you know Mac OS and uh, Watch OS, you right. know, or TV OS, and whatever the heck the HomePod OS is called. Maybe they delay those things a little bit to in order to prioritize iOS getting out the door on that hardware ship date. Well, they but they've been doing the new watch hardware at the iPhone event. That's true. And I I presume you know uh, I mean it, there's so many always so many fewer watch rumors than iPhone rumors, but. I presume we'll see Series 5 watches this fall. I mean, maybe. You know, the watch hasn't been an exactly annual cycle, though. Hmm. Like, there's been a couple of like, little 18-month spans here and there and in between a couple of the generations. So I think it's most likely we'll see a, a Series 5. But I wouldn't say it's as, it's, it isn't as sure of a thing as iPhones every September. Hmm. Uh, but I do think it's most likely. And, and I, I think, again, they're basically going to, like, you know, take the the prey approach to software quality <laughs> and just like just try to make the deadline as hard as you can because it's going to come regardless because it's too important with, with the phone I, I think they would they literally would not even sell the phone or they wouldn't they wouldn't delay selling the phone for hardware i think with the watch they might like they might yeah. announce it that same day and oh it just doesn't ship for three weeks yeah or shipping in october or something yeah like right uh all right let me take a break thank our first sponsor you like this? That we're having me do the sponsor reads? Oh my god, it's it's luxurious. You don't do them live on the show, though. You 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 edit those things in. Yeah, I, I record the sponsor reads right before the show, like a half hour before. Basically, like I, like whenever the live stream starts on ATP, I just finish doing the sponsor reads. Basically, because I, I do I do it all in, in a row. I do the sponsor reads, do the live stream, and then I start the live stream and I go like you know refill my water cup and you know make sure i'm like you know put my kid to bed and you know whatever else I might have to do in the meantime. But it's usually about a half hour before. All right. Well, let me tell you about fracture. Fracture is the company. Takes your photos, prints them directly on glass. In vivid color. In vivid color. Look, I, this is the, my message for Fracture is always the same. Your phone is probably full of thousands and thousands of photos. I think I've got like 28,000 photos in my iCloud library. You've got thousands of photos. You've got family members, friends, vacations. You're probably on, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who don't work at Apple are probably <laughs> taking vacations in <laughs> August. Uh, yeah, Apple people, we're sorry. Pick some of your favorite photos, get them printed by the folks at Fracture, hang them up around your house. It is, it makes your house look better. It'll make you happier and file it away. It's not really gift giving season yet, but always, always one of the greatest gifts you can give to family members. Nobody ever complains. No grandparent has ever complained about getting too many photos of their grandchildren or of dogs and cats and whoever else is in your family. They make them right down in Gainesville, Florida, from U.S.-sourced materials. Uh, it's a green company, carbon-neutral factory. You can go to FractureMe, Fracture.me, for a special discount on your first Fracture order. And don't forget, at the, end of the sh- at the end of your order, they could give you a one-question survey. Where did you hear about Fracture? Just remember to tell them it was the talk show, or if you prefer, ATP. Thank you very much. Uh, so my thanks to Fracture. Go check them out at Fracture.me. Yeah, they're pretty great. House is full of them. They're fantastic. It is. Yeah, I can verify that. 
got a lot of cereal downstairs. I opened my big mouth <laughs> talking about ATP, but you guys were talking about grape nuts. Of course, John Syracuse loves grape nuts. So do I. They're good. Oh. It's crunchy bread gravel. I, I, I think grape nuts look like they're delicious. I kind of like like a cinnamony sort of crunchy cereal. They huh. look very different. I First time I ever tried grape nuts, it was the most surprising taste. I, I just did not expect it. Uh, they really just taste like you're eating sand or kitty litter or something i feel like in the in the area of not that sugary cereals you know because all all breakfast cereal right. like that it has a good degree of sugar and carbs and everything it's really not the greatest thing you could be eating but uh but in in the area of cereals there's like there's like the sugary ones like the super sugary ones like the, you know your frosted flakes your you know captain crunch that kind of stuff um and then there's the ones that have less sugar like cheerios and grape nuts um uh, and i think in the less sugar category Grape nuts are they, – they do surprisingly well because usually in that category, you just have some kind of like, you know, weird like, you know, wheat brand thing compressed into some kind of flake or blob or shape or something. And it's, it's just really boring usually. Grape nuts have a, have a really fun texture. Like you really got to work hard. You really feel like I'm going to – I'm earning these calories that I'm eating here by, by chomping on this gravel in my mouth. It's taking forever to chew and, and it provides a lot more – texture and and i think more flavor than the other not that sugary cereals like cheerios basically tastes like nothing yeah you know cheerios are our baby food basically yeah um and and they're, they're quite commonly used for that purpose that's for exa- that reason i still associate it my son's 15 now but i still associate cheerios very strongly with when he was learning to eat solid food and, oh yeah you know and it occupies the kids the perfect kid food because it's not messy i mean there's you know powder it does change the smell of a car forever if you if you let your kids eat Cheerios in the car. Like the the smell, like you know how like when you when you walk into somebody's house and they have a cat, mm. you can always smell like oh there's a, a cat lives here. Even if they're pretty clean people, you can always kind of tell oh there you smell a little bit cat yeah. lives here, right? You can always tell if people have kids when you get into their car because it'll smell a little bit like Cheerios. Because it's like it's like sand at the beach. You can't you can't really yeah. get all the Cheerios out of the backseat. Right, car. exactly. It'll always smell a little bit like that. Uh, and it's you know with the kids too. It's all when they're at that Cheerios age, they're also car seat age, mm-hmm. and that just makes way more crevices yeah. where a stray Cheerio <laughs> can get, and you wouldn't even notice. You know, you take get get the kid out of the car. Give an eyeball to the back seat and kind of clean up anything you need to clean up. But those Cheerios, they'll get into every crack in the car. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, then, like, you know, the car's being baked in the sun for the next three years, and those Cheerios are just roasting in, in that car seat crevice that you can't reach. <laughs> that smell does not go away. I'm always interested because, uh, you know, we're of similar age. John Syracuse and I are very close in age, very similar backgrounds. We even share a first name. Uh, and it always is fascinating to me where how much aligned our interests are, our, our perspectives. But then there's other areas where we are totally different. And so I thought it was interesting, like uh, he was saying that when he grew up, he wasn't allowed to have sugar cereal, as we called it. <laughs> yep. uh, in my house, I was telling you this last night, we, it was, it, it, we weren't big junk food people, but my family really bought in completely to the mid mid-century post-world war ii kellogg's <laughs> start your day with a bowl of breakfast <laughs> so we had like a veritable selection of of cereals we always had cheerios my dad was a big cheerios guy so we'd have some cheerios we'd have the uh, cornflakes was a big one 
And then my sister and I could pick out two or three sugar cereals at a time, and we'd have them open. So I could have Fruit Loops one day. I could have Frosted Flakes another day. But every single day of the week uh, was a sugar cereal day for us. That's interesting. Yeah, see, we were we were restricted to only weekends. Would be like we'd have like Cracklin' Oat Bran on the weekdays, and then the weekends that was the splurge. That way, then that's when we could have such crazy innovations as um, like when I was a kid. Um, that's when the Rice Krispies Treats cereal mm. debuted. And I remember <laughs> Which thinking, did not need to exist. No, and I remember like when we got it, thinking like this is going to be illegal in like a year. Like there's right. this should this should be illegal already. There's no way this is going to keep being on the market. And here we are still. I I used to. I, it would be something I would look forward to. Uh, I can't say I went to the grocery store all the time with my mom, but you know maybe like eight, nine, ten. You you, you know I might have been. I forget when I was allowed to stay home by myself if my mom went to the grocery store. But one of the things I like to do at the grocery store would be to pick cereal. And in hindsight. It's kind of crazy that there's an entire aisle in a giant supermarket filled with nothing but <laughs> junk food. That, that's <laughs> that, no accident. That's passed off as a as, oh, a, yeah. as a meal. And there's so much about that too. Like like the shape of the boxes is actually a huge waste of cardboard. Like oh like, right right. It's like the the most effective way to pack that kind of cereal would be in a much more like short squat box, almost like the shape of like a pop tarts box, like like a, a shorter squatter box that's deeper. But they make them these giant skinny flat rectangles so so that they they appear large on the shelf. Yeah. They're like billboards for kids. Yeah. And of course they're all you know the, all the sugariest ones are at kid height so that kids can see it and beg their parents to buy it. Well, like at Whole Foods they'll sell cereal that comes in a bag. They yeah, do have yeah. box cereal too, but but they'll sell the cereal in a bag, and then I think they even like label it on the bag. Like this is space efficient. Yeah, right. You're, you're, <laughs> They're you're, trying to tell you, like, well, because like when we were growing right. up, there were bag cereals at the very bottom, and they were like the cheapo ones. Right, right. So they're trying to like probably try get rid of that image of like, no, trust me, bag cereal is good. I, I honestly, I think it's a losing battle. I think I think that that ship has sailed, and no one's ever going to think that. But but I, they can try. One thing too, I I realized like when I was a kid, just like how incredibly effective tv commercials during kids shows were at getting kids to make their parents buy them certain things because like now like my kid now we you know we i've been a cord cutter since before it was called that and my kid now has almost never seen tv commercials like right. well if we're if we're like in a hotel room we'll turn the tv on and he'll he'll be like why does the show keep stopping and what is this like right. <laughs> like but so the, for the most part he doesn't see commercials so it's interesting that he almost never requests certain exact things like buy certain brands or certain toys the way we would and i I just remember thinking like you know the reason i knew about rice krispie treat cereal when i was a kid was that i watched saturday morning cartoons and and probably tv throughout the week at different times as well and so i always i saw all the commercials and i would beg for the things in them that were usually not as good as i thought they would be like the typhoon hovercraft piece of crap (laughs) and (laughs) and 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 like you know but now so I wouldn't say like so few kids watch commercials, but certainly a lot fewer now watch commercials than did like in the eighties and nineties. I wonder like, how does that change? Like how, how, how do our kids even know like what to ask for? I mean, YouTube, I guess I, I, it, in hindsight, I can definitely agree that I was more influenced by, by kids show commercials than I would have as, as a smart alecky, kid who was you know fairly cynical from a young age i would have sworn up and down that you know it's that's for dummies who get brainwashed by commercials i'm smart and meanwhile i'm asking my mom for mr t cereal right (laughs) 
<laughs> and we don't like we don't even go like you know there were, there were the two air, two avenues of marketing that that hit us hard you know there's the commercials were the big one and then also like we would be going to a lot more retail stores like we would yeah. go to a toy store to yeah. buy certain toys now we just get them on Amazon yeah and so like we don't like my kid is hardly ever in a toy store I don't even know if any toy stores are still in business right everything just comes in a brown Amazon box right so like the only the only method of marketing that seems to work on him is when his friends at school have something. Then mm. he'll often ask for one, you know, one like that. Yeah. But that's about it. And and a lot of his friends at school are, have similar parents who were like, you know, also are pretty much cord cutters and right. Amazon shoppers. So like, the the amount of like things that he asks for specifically, uh, you know, certain brand names or certain types of food are very very low compared to what we did when we were kids. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I I think it's also the cereal racket. Before we move on to other topics, the cereal racket. This was, is better than tech news. I mean, the cereal racket was always interesting to me because it it was a very vibrant. It probably still is. I'm guessing it's a very vibrant, distinctive mix between all time classics that haven't changed ever. Cheerio, <laughs> right. Cheerios, cornflakes. Yeah, I think grape nuts are grape nuts are in there. Yeah, like there was the article I mentioned on ATP, the no grapes, no nuts, no market share. I right. think it was called. Uh, like it said, how like they changed, they had to change the recipe twice. Like once to add, uh, they added back a little bit of the like the like wheat hulls. They could call it whole grain. And at some at one time they add they like fortify it with vitamins to yeah, make it the vitamin com- yeah. comply with something. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Like so, like uh, yeah, most of these things like cornflakes, like. They're, I think they have similar things, right? They've they've yeah. modified very slightly over time, but right. they're basically the same thing. But you've got these staples, you got these classics, and then there's the the like I said, Mr. T cereal. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I'm dating myself here, but uh, I remember Pac Man cereal was a big deal in the early '80s. You know, they would just take whatever the fad of you know 1982, and then they would make a breakfast cereal out of it. Of course, yeah. why wouldn't you? I seem to recall. I think Nintendo had a cereal at one point. Was... Oh yeah, every big yeah. I'm sure there were like Mario cereals and right. stuff. I, there was. I'm sure there was probably a Sonic cereal when I was you know going through that time because uh, they, they, you know they were always you know, cereal companies are shameless with licensing and everything. Right. You can get pretty much anything. Yeah, they should do like an iPhone cereal. Just eat, you're eating like little tiny iPhones. I wonder, could they get the super ellipse shape of the icons? Yeah. Can they get that right? No. <laughs> they couldn't even make Pac-Man right. Pac-Man yeah. did not look like Pac-Man. Yeah, it, se- it seems like the breakfast cereal factory tooling is not incredibly precise. <laughs> uh, I, and I, always, I always enjoyed, too, the small print on the cereal boxes. Like, they, <laughs> like, cause they, you know, and I, I, would people sue? I don't know. But it's like, you know, they'd show you having your... Uh, your bowl of Cheerios and then there's a bunch of cut up strawberries in it. And then they yeah. have to tell you that the strawberries are not included. And it's like, Oh yeah. Right. Pretty sure fresh strawberries are not going to do well in this box, but yeah. Strawberries shown for scale. Yeah. Like, or like the, the part of this complete breakfast nonsense. That's, oh, right, that's right. always fun. Like I forget the story. There, there was some story behind that of basically like, it, you know, it's, there was some reason why they, why the cereal companies would advertise as part of this complete breakfast. And it was, it, again, like as with many food claims, it's total BS. And it's right. like it, the, the better breakfast would be that exact same thing minus the cereal. Like right. that would actually be a better breakfast <laughs> right, right. Than, than, than whatever you're adding the cereal to. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I also think, I think it's complete nonsense that I, I know that the people debate about this and I think different, this is, it's very personal in my opinion, you're, the way your body metabolizes, whether you're a morning person or a night, late night person, but they really successfully sold all of North America on the idea that breakfast is the quote most important meal of the day. Like if <laughs> Yeah, I, I feel like whatever whatever meal your food goes in that you sell, you want to make that claim. Right. <laughs> right. Well I I just think, you know, 
but that's a bold claim and they had like nothing to back it up they were just like well we'll just tell no. people that yeah and I, makes- I think what we found is like because now we have you know a variety of like now you know i know people who eat all sorts of breakfasts from like large breakfasts to you know super healthy to super unhealthy to no breakfast right. and they all seem fine it seems like it might be the least important meal of the day actually like it right. seems like you can do pretty much whatever you want for breakfast and it, it's not going to have a, a massive effect on you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, what else do we have? What do you, what's, what's on your mind? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's been a bunch of, you know, minor stuff. Like there was like the, the whole, like, you know, listening to Siri requests thing. I don't know how much there is there. I don't really, I don't care that strongly about that, honestly. I, so I, I, that broke right before Moltz and I recorded over the weekend. Uh, I looked into it. The Guardian is usually pretty good, but I, it, I don't get this. Like you definitely, I knew we've always had to agree to some kind of terms with Siri that would acknowledge that they're letting you, like for quality control purposes, listening, but that they're doing it in a completely anonymized fashion. Like I, it just did not seem like new news to me. I think the difference is, and and they talked about this this week on Upgrade. Um, the difference is that. When when you agree that like oh when you push the Siri button on your phone and you ask it to do something it is going to servers right. and those servers are also going to have things like your contact information so it can know like if you say you know call Tiff it's going to look at my contact to see who Tiff is um, and it does all that logic server side so the servers need your contact stuff like that so we I think we who were in the know we we knew that and we knew that it was doing that the, the main trick this is this is what upgrade brought up I think the main difference is that there's a lot of accidental invocations ever since the Hey Dingus support came out. Like, I, like we have a HomePod in our kitchen, and all the time we'll be having a conversation that does not include those two words at all, and, you know, HomePod will pipe up in the corner. Hmm? Sorry, what was that? Or, you know, something like that. It'll make some noise that indicates that it was listening for a few seconds and thought we were trying to tell it something, and then it failed for whatever reason. And... There, that happens a lot, and and the HomePod is the only device that I have Hayden Nick enabled for. I don't even use it on the other devices because, honestly, it's a lot easier to have a HomePod in your house if that's the only device you have respond to that command. Um, that solves a number of problems. Uh, but anyway, by default, that feature's on 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 most Apple devices these days. Like yeah, it, it'll yeah. it'll tell you during the setup wizard, and it'll give you a chance to turn it off. But like the the pro, the like kind of like the default run through process, the encouraged flow is to turn it on. Yeah. So. A lot of people have the Hey Dinga support turned on. And so that, because it is both trying to be automatic with its invocation and because it is honestly not as good as something like an Amazon Echo at knowing when you're calling it and when you're not, uh, I think that's giving a lot of accidental input into Siri. And so the controversial part of these recordings is like, you didn't even realize it was recording. And so who knows what you were talking and, about. Right. And so you could have been doing something embarrassing or nefarious or private. Right. And and now like now somebody some somebody at some contractor in Silicon Valley, not even an Apple employee, but some contractor is reviewing, you know, your sex tape or drug deal or whatever. And it's yeah. like th- and that's just that goes against what people expect to be the case. Even though we know academically, oh yeah, recordings go to the server. Like you think of it when, when you think of these things, you think of the typical or ideal case you think oh when i push the button and and tell it and ask it a question it's going to send what i said to a server okay no problem you don't think about all this accidental invocations where it's recording just a random snippet of audio from your world and then some weirdo is listening to it and, and i would guess that accidental invocations might be more likely to be reviewed 
because Siri, you know, like usually she'll go, hmm, I didn't catch that. or Right, or, yeah. And that maybe those get flagged as, hey, the last 15 seconds of interaction here weren't completed successfully. And maybe that sets a flag that makes it more likely to be reviewed. And I did see that. That was in the Guardian story where the, the anonymous contractor who was their source, uh, you know, said that they heard drug deals and all yeah, sorts yeah. of uh, and I'm sh- like and that. I'm sure that isn't the common case. I'm sure most of what they hear is boring or nothing or or you know just some random chatter. But but yeah, the, like the fact is that can happen and it does occasionally at least happen. And so yeah, and I think the, the the main issue here is that people don't really know that that's happening. Like you can tell them in some small print somewhere, but they don't really know. Like they they don't. You're not really going to communicate well to people that your recordings of random audio snippets will be reviewed by humans sometimes like that. There should be an explicit opt out that says basically like, can, can Apple review your recordings periodically, you know, to, for, you know, to improve quality or whatever, you know, however they word it, but like that should be an explicit opt out. And right now there is no separate setting for that. If you don't want Apple to review your recordings periodically, you can't use Siri. Right. And you can't, you can't both advance the position that, Siri is the future and super important and we're tying so much functionality to Siri and also say, well, if you don't like this detail of it, just don't use any of it. Like that's, you, that's not a valid argument, I think, at this point. I do think Siri is getting better. I think it is, you know, I've, I've always <laughs> been a little like more... Like desktop Linux. I, I, I've, I remain optimistic about Siri's future. Um, but I still think that we are in such ridiculous early days of this and in some ways that frustrates me because it was like we went when i was a kid we went from like uh, steve the two steves making the apple one in a garage to having the macintosh seven years later (laughs) like (laughs) yeah it, it was really really rapid and all of a sudden by 1984 we had these computers that had this really polished interface that was you know like regular people could use it and understand it whereas series has been around since 2011 uh yeah um and it's not progressing as fast and none of them are that good but i the, one of the little things i noticed and it's so hard it's it's so much harder to evaluate than software on your phone or on your mac where you see everything and you see all the details and you can say, oh, they changed the size of these buttons or they changed the color. Um, oh, they redid the uh, disk utility window, right? It wasn't like like when they redid disk utility a few years ago, it wasn't like there was any question in your mind, did they change disk utility? You could see it. Whereas with the voice assistants, you can never quite be sure. But like I have noticed this summer, it has been very, very hot in Philadelphia. And I, one of the things I do most frequently with uh, Siri is ask for the weather because I might be getting dressed in the morning or something. I don't have my watch on yet or I don't have my phone in my hand. And I have noticed that she hasn't once this summer given me any kind of smart alecky, uh, ooh, hot, you know, because oh, it's 101 degrees. Do you think they like turn that down a little bit? All that annoying well, over personality? I, I think they have, but maybe I'm getting a bad sample size you know like I, yeah. I i can't prove it but i i'm specifically thinking about the hot temperatures uh or what was the, and in the winter she does burr or cold you yeah know? it's always it's always like 
about 40% more words than you wanted her to give you in response to anything. And right. it's oftentimes like a lot, a lot more personality than is warranted by the accuracy and helpfulness of the assistant. It's like, <laughs> like I feel like if the assistant's going to be fairly primitive, you know, in, in grand terms and, and not, and, and it's going to keep making mistakes a lot the way many of these assistants do. And especially Siri, uh, I feel like it, it shouldn't exhibit a lot of personality because if it's if it's doing something wrong and then it says brr you're just annoyed you're like you want to throw it out the window at that point like it you know give give a little personality as, po- as little personality as possible until it's actually like earned and i feel like none of these assistants are good enough that they've earned the ability to start making smart ass comments back at you right and i feel like like one of the ones for me is i have two contacts in my contacts database uh for women whose first name is amy one of them I sent text messages to all the time. <laughs> and the other is somebody I have a professional relationship with. And I don't believe I've spoken to her since like 2015. But I I don't want to delete the contact. <laughs> I feel like maybe you have to rename her. I Maybe. But <laughs> then I feel like I'll forget what I renamed her. I guess I know her last name. I can just <laughs> yeah. keep that. But it's it's a little interaction that bothers me every single time when I'll say, you know, text Amy something, something, and they'll say, which Amy? And then I have to pick. And it never learns. And it never learns. <laughs> and it just feels like the, it, like I could hire the worst personal assistant in the world. I could go to a local college and say, give me somebody who's on drugs and is flunking out and I'll hire, I'll hire that person as my personal, personal assistant. <laughs> They could be, you know, really bad personal assistant. I could be fretting. I could say, oh, I think I got to fire this person. It's not working out. But if I told my assistant, text my wife that I'm going to be late or text Amy that, text I'm, gonna Amy, be late, right, that yeah. I'm going to be late, they would know to text my wife. Yeah. Even the worst assistant, right. a human would always have the, have the judgment to know that context. I mean, yeah, like <laughs> right now, like we have kind of a, a dual system family. Like we, we had the Amazon Echo before we had the HomePod and we still have both and so do we yeah and it is so bad and we recently uh like tiff took over the echo as hers like we reassigned it to entirely hers so it's it's all her accounts it's registered to her and everything and the home pod stays with me and so we we always joke that now we have like two dim assistants that are just kind of dim in different ways (laughs) and like you ask one of them to do something and it totally bombs out yes the other one it'll usually get it right but it's not like one of them is never like, there isn't just one that's, that's so good that we can keep just that one. Ultimately, what I hope is happening here, and maybe this is a bad example because we haven't seen the result of the big, like, maps rewrite yet. I know there was some concern that it might actually not be as good as we were hoping. Hmm. Um, but assuming that it does get good, I hope there is something like the the great maps rewrite going on for Siri. You know, they, they hired uh, John Jandrea, um, what, about two years ago now, a year ago, something like that? I think it was two years ago. Something like that, yeah. And or maybe and, it was just last year. I don't know. Regardless, yeah. they hired him like you know, and then fairly he got the, recently, yeah. right? And he's he got promoted to SVP. Um, and so like clearly like there was there's a major shift of Syria leadership with somebody who was very qualified to do this kind of thing um, in in a way that I think was probably way better than the way Apple was doing it before. So hopefully there is some kind of great effort going on to really transform Syria and really bring it 
at least up to the level of the uh, Amazon Echo and the Google whatever. Uh, hopefully, it gets past that level. Right. Um, but but just to at least meet it in some of the basics, like Siri. Yes, yeah, Siri's ahead in some areas, but it still falls behind in some of the basics of like reliability, performance, some basic logic, basic learning. Like it's still way behind, even even where the Amazon Echo was like three years ago in a lot of those areas. So I, I hope they're. I hope and, and I and I assume that they actually are doing some kind of great Siri reset behind the scenes. Although honestly, I've heard nothing to that effect. And it's you know it, it's so hard. It, it's obviously a very hard problem domain. Um, but like if if I only understood my wife as often as Siri understands my wife, she would she would be concerned and, and take you know tell me I need to go get my hearing checked at the doctor because this isn't working out. And, and the and, problems go beyond hearing. Right. But Siri my, hears me great. Oh, see, she she hears something, but it's uh, like Amy, for whatever reason, Amy, it, it, you know, a fine podcaster in her own right, speaks very clearly. Uh, but it, it's shocking to me how often, like, when, like, her, her miss rate on, like, doing some of our home kit stuff, like, with the lights or the shades or something like mm. that is really low. Or and and she'll say stuff like, uh, "Open open the kitchen shades," and and one of the things that's great about Siri is that Siri doesn't make you do like a command line. You have to use the words the same way. You can say, "Right, open open the shades in the kitchen." Open the kitchen shades. You don't have to program a scene with those specific names. You should generally just figure it out. But but uh, it, it's just we have one. Uh, where the main floor of our house is a couple of different rooms. So I do have a scene called uh, open main floor shades and that just opens all of them. And Amy will say open main floor shades. Exactly. And Siri will say, I'm sorry, I don't have anything by that name. So the one common issue I have with Siri is if you're saying something that is close to a common word, it's almost like my, my like snap to grid thing. Like if you're saying something that's close to a common word, but it's not. But it's like a different word. Sometimes Siri will hear it as that common word every single time, no matter how you say it. So one example of this is like when Siri first came out, uh, you could say, you could tell your phone like if your name, like in my wife's case, if your name was Tiffany, you could say, "Call me Tiff," and it would say, "Okay, from now on, I will call you whatever you said." But in this case, she could not get Siri to say that. It would just say every single, no matter how she or I pronounced it, every single time it would say, "Okay, I will call you Test." Every single time, and 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 even you know that and that was years ago now. But even now with the HomePod, like they added the named timer support. Finally, thank God, it's great. I I wish it would come to iOS, but cool. We're, you know, start with the HomePod at least. That's good. And you know, some mornings I'll, I'll make some bacon and eggs, and I will say start a bacon timer for twelve minutes with the bacon in the oven. Every single time. Okay, I've started a baking timer. <laughs> Every time, no matter how I say right. bacon, I cannot get it to not say back to me baking. Right. And it you would think like if you were talking to a person you you could say start a bacon timer. B A C O N. Yeah. Right. Yeah, you and, can clarify. Yeah. And and there's no way to clarify like that and it's just like the Yeah. It, you just sort of start to break down, you know. I don't know. Which, Maybe I think I'm saying it like with an apostrophe instead of yeah, the G at the end. Bacon. A ba- I'm just baking out here. Yeah, you're just yeah. dropping your G's. Casually. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> start a bacon timer. We're bacon. <laughs> I also think that the name timer thing was interesting. Uh, 
that you know the HomePod. Well, and HomePod was single timer only. You couldn't name them, and it was single timer. Yes. Um, and the reaction from some people at like Apple PR was okay. It's a, you know it's a good feature, but you know is this really that big a deal? And yes, I, it is. <laughs> well, and I and the thing is is I think it it was an instance where the cultural insularity of Apple, where a lot of Apple employees really only use Apple stuff. And if they, so if they didn't, if they weren't used to having an echo where you can do that and do it in the kitchen, it's like you, you're totally missing the point. It's like the main reason to buy an echo really and put it in your kitchen is to have these name timers that you don't have to touch and that you can query, you know, how much time is left on the pizza and get a very accurate answer. And I think too, I mean, this this was a larger problem with the HomePod in general. Like the HomePod was such a a poor market fit because maybe the way Apple saw it was the way they priced it and the way they marketed it, which is this is something you put like in a living room. Uh, and in that kind of context, maybe you don't need multiple name timers very often. But the market has a very different opinion. The market says one of the best places for a voice cylinder is in the kitchen. Yeah. And whether or not Apple wanted to position theirs yeah. as such, they and you know that's that's part of the reason why everyone says it's too expensive because like right. yeah it's a pretty good three hundred dollar speaker but like you know it's it's not it's not competitive in the market of of voice cylinders and it's because voice cylinders cost a hundred bucks and most people naturally don't want to spend home entertainment system dollars for something that's just a gadget in the kitchen right and especially that that integrates so poorly into any other type of a home theater system uh like you really kind of can't use a home pod easily with pretty much anything else so it is like a standalone thing it actually is a really good kitchen speaker yeah. it's very expensive for that purpose but if you can swing it it's a pretty good one uh but i gotta say the echo is still better because the echo is more reliable its name timer support is better and more reliable and faster um, and they have the various models that have the screens, which honestly, I've I, I tried the very first Echo Show with the screen. Yeah, I remember you. Saying I returned that. it within like a day. I'm like, yeah. nope, it was terrible. But I, I, I hear the new ones are better. Um, but you know, it, whether or not Apple wants the market to believe where it wants to position its products, it doesn't really matter what Apple wants the market to believe. The market's going to believe what it's going to believe. And so if the market says a voice assistant cylinder speaker thing should be about a hundred bucks and should have multiple name timers because we're going to put it in our kitchens. You know, Apple can only do so much to change that perception because they want to make something more expensive. That's more home theater focused. Like the reality is that's what the market wants. And so far that has proven to be what people still want the home pod to be. Like Apple hasn't moved the market towards them. The market just kind of left them behind. It makes me wonder what they're working on, what their plans are for home pod. Like I, I could see them going, in either direction. I could see them expanding it to be, you know, which is what they did with the iPod back in the day where they'd have multiple iPods of different sizes and hitting lower price points. Mm-hmm. Um, I could see them making a smaller one that is less expensive and maybe still sounds really good for its size. Or I could see them completely dropping it and getting out of the business of making it. Yeah, I mean, because to some, to some degree, I think they might argue that the kitchen HomePod is called the iPad. Right. You know, and I don't. I don't think that's necessarily a, a good replacement, but that is, I think, what a lot of their marketing would 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 try to have you believe. Um, and for some people, it is a good replacement. Like if you want like a device that responds to voice commands and can play music and stuff and has a screen to show you stuff, yeah, actually, an iPad's pretty good for that. And right. I do I do use my iPad in the kitchen very frequently. It's a great kitchen device. Uh, but you know, I, I I think what's most likely to happen with the HomePod is 
I think they, they're just going to kind of slowly peter out and eventually bow out of the market, similar to how they did with Wi-Fi routers, right. for similar reasons. That's that, the like, exact – I was trying to think about what I was thinking of, and I was thinking yeah. about the, the way that they got out of the Wi-Fi routers, uh, even though they, uh, in some ways, I think, deserve credit for starting it. You know, that airport was like mm-hmm. one of the first highly publicized Wi-Fi systems. I mean, it was – you know, they did the hula hoop. Uh, yep, yep. You know, it was all it was all radical. They had Phil Schiller jumping off off a twenty foot uh, platform mm-hmm. to show that the accelerometer worked on the on the thing, and it, it was still broadcasting. Yep. Uh, wi Fi. Yeah, but ultimately, like I, I don't, I don't think like they're never going to compete well against Amazon because Amazon is so good at making really cheap hardware that if you don't care so much about like the you know, materials quality and design and UI quality. I mean, Amazon's UIs are atrocious uh, for the for their products that do have screens. They're horrendous. <laughs> but uh, but if you don't care about all that stuff and you just want a voice assistant cylinder that can play music and have multiple timers in your kitchen, Amazon is going to kill them over and over and over again at that. Apple is just not good at making cheap, frequently updated like commodity hardware that interacts with a frequently updated web service that interact integrates with a bunch of third party things like none of that's in apple's dna and so i i think the home pod is you know rather than become competitive by having a wider range that spans multiple price points and making siri really good on it i think the more likely outcome is they just slowly bow out you know they're already doing a whole lot of airplay 2 hardware with other hardware partners right. I, I think that's 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 the first step in getting themselves out of this business and then you know, give it a couple more years where AirPlay Two is in more products that themselves have voice assistants built in, like the, like Sonos has a couple. Um, I think Apple's out of this business in a couple of years. Yeah, and something like Sonos is, you know, it's so much more flexible because it, they've got like a whole range of products. You know, it's it, it, yeah. I like HomePod as a product a lot, but it is not like I wouldn't want it to be my TV sound system. Well, and honestly, they sound great. Like if you get a stereo pair of them, they yeah. sound awesome, but they have no inputs. And right. they and you can you can make them work with an Apple TV, but it's pretty hard, but it's a little clumsy to do that, and it's nearly impossible to make them work well with anything else. Right. And so it's it's just not like Apple did a really good job engineering the microphones. They did a really good job engineering the sound. It looks kind of cool. It's a good size. It like it is a really nice product for a narrow for a narrow set of use cases and unfortunately that that set of use cases is too narrow for the market and it's the kind of thing that i would love for apple to keep going on that and make it better make series support behind it better make the software better make the hardware you know move it forward make a bigger range make smaller ones make bigger ones i would love that i just don't think they're going to do it if they did it i think they could be better than everyone if they really put their heart behind it and if they really you know, make Siri really good as the general, you know, initiative that I hope is happening there and really put their back into HomePod. I think they could really make it amazing. And I would love that because I would like that way better than all the other alternatives that are kind of creepy and made with crappy hardware. But I just I just don't see it happening, and unfortunately. It's, it's also a little frustrating knowing that it comes from the same company that made AirPods, which yeah. are amazing and in a lot of ways are a sibling product. You know, they're wireless. You You talk to Siri you're you're listening to music and everybody everybody i know i know you have issues with the fitting in your ears um but other than like what if if you think that they're comfortable most people absolutely love airpods it would be interesting to see somehow rub some of that airpod magic on on the homepod (laughs) yeah and i mean i think ultimately it's, it's it just again comes down to like 
what how much are they willing to play in that commodity hardware business like how cheap are they willing to make this thing how how well are they able to compete uh to get you know i'm not saying they have to beat or match the echo's price but they have to get closer to it like you know it yeah. it has to cost like 30 or 50 percent more not like 300 percent more or whatever well, it is it's like, sort of in the way that airpods are, are they're expensive for earpods you know are they, right. are they still 160 bucks 150 i think the base is 170 now or something yeah. and then the wireless charging is 200 yeah um but when you compare them to the highest rated wireless buds from other companies uh like i just read a review last week of somebody somebody was reviewing the new sony ones uh which seemed like a really good product uh mm-hmm. But they're more expensive. Yeah, like AirPods are actually pretty price competitive for what they are for for the other for the you know other competitive you know both small wireless buds and just like the market of generally like decent Bluetooth head decent portable Bluetooth headphones. They're all around two hundred bucks at least. So like it's actually you know that those are actually pretty well priced for what they are. Um, so we know Apple can do it, uh, but the HomePod I think I, I think they wanted they wanted to kill Sonos with it. Unfortunately, they didn't. Right. And they didn't come anywhere near competing with the uh, Echo family. No. All right, let's uh, take a break. Thank our next sponsor. It's another another company. Marco is very familiar with Linode. Oh, yeah. Linode is proud to announce their newest data center in Toronto, Canada, built using their most up-to-date hardware and their next-generation network backbone. Linode Toronto allows users to comply with in-country data protect- protection requirements while taking advantage of all Linode's technology and tools. So if you are in Canada and you have some kind of legal compliance, you need a Canadian data server, data center. Linode has you covered now. I uh, think India too. The, the Mumbai one, I think just opened. I don't know. My talking points might be out of date on that, but that's another, I know that was the other one that was on the, uh, on the agenda. Here's what they get. You get a $20 credit for all new customers and they have a $5 a month plan, which is actually pretty good. It's a pretty good plan that a lot of people could get by with. You get that's effectively four months of free service, uh, and they've got everything you could possibly need. I don't even know what some of this stuff is, but you can get a dedicated CPU, uh, CI CD environments. I don't even know what that is. Casey knows what that is. It's yeah. some kind of like testing thing. Uh, everything features native SSD storage. Of course, it's all a forty gigabit network. Industry leading processors. And again, they have 10 worldwide data centers. Might be 11. says here additional data center opening in Mumbai, India by the end of 2019. Yeah, I I think it either is about to open or just did open. Uh, You pay for what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. So if suddenly you got a a big deal, big announcement, you you need to increase your bandwidth, get more RAM. You can do that on the fly. Dial it back down when the traffic is over. Uh, and they have a brand new cloud manager featuring an improved user interface at cloud.linode.com. You can check it out. Um, anyway, great company. Uh, I've, I'm a customer. Everything I do is going to be hosted there pretty soon. Uh, not quite there yet, but I know Marco hosts. Uh, oh, yeah. Overcast at Marco.org and the ATP live stream. It's all, it's all at Linode. I absolutely love it. It's the best. Well, here's the, talk, here's the uh, promo code you need. Talk show 2019. No, the just talk show 2019, and that's what gets you the $20 credit. But the URL is linode.com slash the talk show. Uh, my thanks to Linode. Uh, go check them out if you need a web server. Uh, did you see the essay? I just linked to it the other day. Uh, Craig Maud wrote Yeah, a, but performance, fast software. Basically. Fast software is great software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That and was really good. He's a, he's a great writer. I've known Craig for years. 
very, very thoughtful guy. Uh, and it's funny because he's writing about fast software. But A, it, it struck a chord with me because it's something I've thought about. I mean, I've spent hundreds of hours here on the show talking about software quality. But the very specific nature of software that feels fast and responsive and that the way that that makes him feel that that software is well-built. And when you're using an app, like one of his examples was uh, the web export dialogue in Photoshop. <laughs> and, you know, it's a dialogue box a lot of people have to use a lot of time. And it's... I. I like I, I literally think that it, it's like a dialogue box that was written using Chromium or something like that. Like they're actually firing up like a web browser inside the window. It takes You hit the command, it takes a couple seconds before the dialogue even appears. It makes you feel, it makes you not trust the software. And it, it makes it feel just crappy. It, it, feel, it feels like almost uncared for. Right. Because like, it, you know, a lot of times, you know, those of us who are, who are you know, lucky enough to be on fast hardware... Like, if you buy, like, a nice Mac, you know, a nice MacBook Pro or iMac or iMac Pro, you know, you got a lot of performance under that hood. And if, if then some software that you run performs horribly doing some common task, like showing its new file dialog, you kind of know, like, this is not a hardware problem. Like, and which makes it even more frustrating. Like, I have, you know, all these cores, I have all this memory, I have this fast SSD, all at your disposal software. What are you wasting it on? Like, what are you doing? Well, and Photoshop is an interesting example because Photoshop used to be amazingly fast. And this was, you know, we're talking like the early years, uh, like early to mid 90s. And the hardware at the time, you know, I I literally, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it was hundreds of times slower than a modern modern high-end desktop. Um, and in certain ways, even like in things like IO, even more like, you know, because first we got cheap RAM, then we got SSDs. Right. And like and like, cause, you know, in the 90s, like I, I've said before, like the sound of computing in the 90s was the sound of your hard drive grinding. Right. <laughs> because, you know, because hard drives were, were slow to begin with. And also RAM was incredibly expensive in the 90s. And so it was, you know, nobody had enough RAM to do right. what the operating systems and everything wanted to do. So just constant swapping, just constant hard drive grinding. Well, I forget the exact details of it, but I remember in those early years uh, when everything was so limited, Photoshop even had its own custom swap disk code. For, yeah, I think for, it had to. Yeah, because they couldn't trust the I, I, a. I think they wanted to write their own code because it was so mission critical, but uh, it just wasn't something that the OS really provided at the time. Yeah, uh, or at least not all the OSs that ran on would have provided it. And you used to have to wait for so much stuff in Photoshop, not because. And again, I'm the app felt fast, and if there was something you needed to do in an export dialog, and you and you did it all the time because you're using Photoshop, so you have the keyboard shortcut memorized. You'd hit that keyboard shortcut and the dialogue was there instantly. No waiting. The things you'd have to wait for was the computationally uh, difficult stuff. Like if you're applying a Gaussian blur to a, right. at the time, what we thought of as large JPEGs. Yeah, right. And then, you 640 know, by 480. <laughs> but even that, there was certain, there were, even though you had to wait, you might wait like 30, 40 seconds to apply a filter to a photograph. But everything about it was responsive. The dialog box appeared as soon as you hit the command. The actual filter started being applied the second you hit the return key or clicked the button to do it on screen. The progress dialog would appear instantly 
would update at a regular basis. And then as soon as it got to the end of the progress bar to the pixel, it would disappear and you would see your result. Uh, like that, that's, it was a slow process because the computers were so slow, but, but the, the responsiveness to your user actions was impeccable. Uh, and it's just an interesting contrast that we have these faster computers and now slower interfaces. Well, I think, you know, it, you could say a lot, of, a lot of the same things apply to the original iPhone, that the original iPhone was very slow hardware, really, like compared to anything. Um, but at the time, it was like, this is the best we can do, so let's, let's deal with it. And so they, they actually really engineered the software with, a, with tons of, of effort to maximize responsiveness while they knew they'd be waiting for the hardware. So, you know, things like the Safari drawing the little grid, right. you know, before things would render and stuff like the that. The checkerboard. Yeah, right. yeah, the checkerboard. Or yeah, if yeah. you scrolled too fast, you'd get ahead. Right. It yeah, would only, because yeah. it, it was so RAM constrained, they couldn't read, do the whole front page of the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So they'd render the top of it. And then as you scrolled, they would render more of it on the fly. But if you scrolled too fast, they would just show you that checkerboard so that it was always right. responsive to your touch. And, and there's all the, you know, all the stuff, you know, deep in the system about things like being responsive to touches and scrolling being very smooth and things like that. And you know, and they did all this because they knew the hardware was very constrained. So they had they they took a lot of effort and were very conscientious about making sure everything stayed fast as, as much as possible while they knew they'd be waiting on the hardware to do some more complicated things. And that's how early computers were too. Like early computers, like in the '90s and '80s, and, and even the early 2000s, like they 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 too were very constrained by their hardware. And so programmers at the time, both OS and application programmers had to be more conscientious about what they did. And and I think what has happened in probably the last 10 years or so is that hardware has gotten so good and so fast, and we have so much CPU power, so much RAM. SSDs came around to eliminate a lot of I.O. bottlenecks. And now programmers at almost every level don't really have to think about performance for most of the things they write anymore. So even though the hardware is faster than ever, also programmers have stopped caring about performance unless it's really a big problem. And as you get into things like big companies like Adobe and working on big projects like Photoshop, the argument for like, we need to make the new dialogue fast has to go through so many people and they have so many conflicting uh, priorities of things like, well, if we write this code once using web technologies, it can run on all of our platforms with the same code and look the same, fit our branding guidelines and all this other other crap. And, Performance is not an, on in top of anybody's mind anymore because everything is so fast. Probably half the team working on stuff like that has never had to write performant code, and it's sort of just sort of a loss of the sense of craftsmanship. Yeah, in, in the work. A, an, another example, and you know, right up your alley, and from your your personal experience, is uh, Tumblr was always very fast. I, I haven't used it in a while. I don't know if that's actually still true, <laughs> but. Uh, a lot of CMSs, you know, you save an article and then it sits there and spins for, you know, seconds at a time. Enough that it's like, you could see how somebody thought this is fine. You don't need, who needs to be back at in control of your CMS instantaneously upon hitting the post button. But it's... It's actually not true. Like my CMS is actually a little slow in that regard where it takes a couple seconds for when I post an article to uh, to get back in control of everything. And when you notice the typo and you hit <laughs> update 
and you have to wait like seven seconds before you can fix it. It's just sitting there right in front of you, but it's spinning. It'll drive you nuts. Whereas Tumblr was always, you hit publish and it was like, did something happen? Yeah. Oh yeah. It's already done. <laughs> there it is. There's, there's my new, uh, there's my new picture of my kid. Well, and, and part of that is, you know, you, like your, your CMS, first of all, was made back when RAM was expensive and, <laughs> and is, and is also, I believe, rebuilding static files every time you publish. Yeah, but um, that shouldn't take long. No, it shouldn't. But you know, you also if it's like rebuilding a bunch of archive pages or something, no, then nope. then you might have okay, so maybe not. But anyway, no, it's just bad um, software. <laughs> yeah, and and your and your software doesn't have to be that performant in that way because it has one user at a time. Right. Like with Tumblr, everything had to be really fast because if it wasn't, the servers would explode <laughs> right. because it had so many users and so much traffic at any given time. Like things that we couldn't do quickly, we just couldn't do. Right. So like so everything was was designed uh and to a large degree overcast servers I've I've made the same way because I I take a lot of the same design approaches to them um of basically like if something's going to be a very heavy operation that I can't do quickly I just don't do it. Hmm. I thought uh I know I've talked about this before but what are podcasts for other than retelling old stories but <laughs> I thought one of the interesting changes Apple made philosophically number 1 I'll go even further back out like I've been thinking a lot lately as the iPhone and iOS settle in as long-standing platforms. Like, they're not new. I mean, you know, we had the 10th year anniversary last year. I mean, this is a well-established software platform. Uh, but we went from the first version of Mac OS X to the iPhone in, like, six years. I mean, I know that Apple spent, like, five years working on Mac OS X before it actually shipped as a 10.0. Um, but it that era from like 2001 to you know and it, the iPod was new to okay here's the iPhone feels like a long stretch of time but it wasn't it was very that's actually a, just a handful of years and a lot of the people were the same and I thought one of the interesting things that Apple obviously changed its mind about between Mac OS 10 and the original iPhone was what to make. F- seem impressive with mac os 10 they they valued rendering quality above all else so like when you and again this seems like a goofy thing to get excited about but back then when you'd resize a window and the contents would update live right as right. opposed to just drawing an outline and then refreshing once when you let go of the window that that seemed impressive and they were doing all of this fancy anti-aliasing and they you know it, it, all these drop shadows and they add translucency. They, they just went all, way overboard with the quote unquote lickability of the interface, but it was slow. It, it, it was slow to resize windows when you would drag a window around real fast, you could see it shearing on screen. And then six years later with the iPhone, they went the other way and they were like, if we can't keep up, we'll just draw this checkerboard and make sure that the scrolling speed keeps up and i remember talking to somebody at apple about this once um and he told me an interesting story that uh they knew that mac os 10 was slow they you know there was they weren't fooling themselves that the the what was the word everybody used the snappiness wasn't Mm -hmm. there and they set up a lab where they what was the version of windows that would have been current in like 2001 xp yeah i think it was xp yeah, yeah, it was XP. So they had a lab 
and they used high-speed cameras and timed things like you click on the file menu and how many milliseconds does it take for the drop-down menu to to finish rendering and if you drag your mouse down the menu and it starts highlighting things how quickly after the mouse gets there does the highlight come and they tested you know mac os 10 side by they had a whole list he said of of things that we timed that were mostly just rendering things and their gold standard was XP. They, you know, they're like, look at how much faster all of this is. And sure, they weren't. It wasn't as fancy looking, but they wanted, you know, this is our goal uh, to get it as fast as this. And you know, it was the sort of thing that they're never going to talk about publicly because they're not going to admit that their <laughs> their stuff was slow and Windows was fast. But then the funny thing is, when Windows Seven shipped. They installed it and they set up another machine and they realized <laughs> everything had gotten slow and, <laughs> and they didn't know what to do. And he said it was a real fight within the company as to whether they should still be benchmarking themselves against XP because that right. was the fast one. And there were others who were like, no, see, they're slow too. That's now we're fine. This is all, oh, this interesting. Is all good. That's it's kind of sad that that was even a debate. Yeah, well, the uh, the people who wanted to keep testing on XP won the debate. I hope so, yeah, because yeah. it's like, oh, everyone else sucks, we can suck too. <laughs> that's a terrible <laughs> argument. Right. <laughs> but, I, but I think that's sort of the nut, uh, like, why did Craig Maud write this essay? Because there's oh, so many people out there doing work who don't have that philosophy. I'm like, ah, yeah. if it takes four seconds, it takes four seconds. Well, and I feel like it's even, it's we're talking about a lot of times smaller times than that, like, it's like like one of the um, one of the tricky things about uh, trying to match responsiveness of, of like old hardware is like it used to be that when you pressed a key on your keyboard, it would generate a hardware interrupt and and it would basically like appear immediately on the screen like within some tiny amount of time because of like and and that but that depended on how the keyboard technology worked, how the screen technology worked, like the, the cathode gun, like how, how all that stuff worked to get that level of responsiveness. Hardware today is way more complicated than that. And there's all these different levels and layers and a lot of things that introduce small amounts of latency, like, like having keyboards be wireless, you know, stuff like that. Like there's, there's all these like little levels of latency that are the result of technological advancement of like the hardware got better in certain ways. It got more capable, more complicated. The OSs got more advanced and there's different layers of everything now. So a lot of that's just down to, down to that. But then like, I feel like the, the big challenge that we have with software is not, not the things take four seconds when they should take one, but that things that should take 20 milliseconds take 200 milliseconds. So we're talking about like much smaller time intervals here, but that that adds up and or simple things like how I believe you said before how uh, when you do when you invoke spotlight with command space on a Mac or it, when you when you like open a new window on a Mac or do something like that and then you start typing the commands of what you right. want to appear in like a text field or a right. name or something it, it'll queue up those commands and it will it will put them in as soon as it can right. on iOS if you hit command space with a keyboard on an iPad Pro it doesn't start accepting input until it has finished the animation and showing you the text box. And there's like, there's little things like that where like that is responsiveness. Oh, it has in 13. Uh, don't quote me on this, but I actually think it has shipped in the latest version of iOS 12, a little birdie, a little birdie who saw my rant about that was like, uh, told me that this drives some of us nuts too. We've, 
we're going to try to sneak a f- don't say anything but you know don't quote <laughs> me but but i think that i think they fixed it I, I and i think they're definitely supposedly fixed it for ios 13 but i don't understand how that ever shipped like how does that not because you would think that if you are on the spotlight team like you're one of the people who's your your one of your jobs is to program the spotlight interface on ios wouldn't you think that you're really good at using Spotlight and that you might start? <laughs> you would think. Well, but also, like, I'm sure it was probably one of those situations where, like, you know, uh, first of all, on iOS, like, keyboard support was very rudimentary until iOS 13. Like, the, yeah. the, the APIs, I mean, I'm sure they had better stuff privately, but the public APIs for it were, were pretty rough, pretty rudimentary. Um, and so they, I bet, like, the whole stack of trying to capture the keyboard input was works totally differently on the iOS than it does on Mac, probably. Um, and also, you know, that's, presumably a part of springboard and springboard is like famously like this massively complex code base that does all sorts of stuff and it's apparently been like refactored a whole bunch of times to try to deal with its complexity because it's it's just so big and so complex and so important it's so critical to the os and and so like i can imagine that was probably a harder job than it sounded like but you know that being said like you know again it's it's this this whole thing about performance being important or not like you know like when you when you start talking about these differences between like you know, a, a 20 millisecond activity or a 200 millisecond activity or something like that, it's kind of like death by a thousand cuts. Yeah. Like, at the time, if something takes 200 milliseconds, that's a pretty frequent interaction that you could make faster, but it might be a little bit, you know, inconvenient to make it faster, you know, the way things are, are built. At the time, you might be able to ship that. You might be able to say, you know what, we're on a tight deadline, we're trying to ship this in time for the phones or whatever, uh, we, we have to get it out the door, it just simply isn't important enough to to get that time down right now. We'll do it later, and of course later never comes. And when you have enough of that in an app or in an OS or in a platform, it, it really... And I think this is what Craig Mob is ultimately getting at. Like the just overall feeling of software that is built that way or that ends up that way is so different. And and at no time does it ever seem like a critical problem as you're building it. And the company responsible for it, it might never be economically worthwhile for them to devote the resources to really make it incredibly faster once it is like quote fast enough to be usable like that. Uh, but ultimately, it that really does result in like. A, a feeling of like you're just kind of moving through maple syrup you yeah. know and, and to me that's the performance in a lot of ways like that is as important as things like input reliability because yeah. it's tied to it like like you know part of the reason why i i don't like certain things is because like like i think my keyboard and mouse and trackpad should be a hundred percent reliable right. not 99.9 percent reliable like a hundred percent reliable and if you are operating something and if you're typing a sentence and one out of 200 key presses doesn't register, like that's a really big problem, actually. Even, it it, it seems be like a small number. I think it could be way higher than that. I mean, I think yeah. it could be like one in 10,000 and it would drive you nuts. Exactly. And so right. if, because you, you feel you, like you're not in control. If you write point. a thousand word article. Yeah, I guess it's probably like 10,000 yeah. keystrokes, right? Yeah. So like, I feel like, you know, if you, it, you, you feel like you're not in control of your computer when it just randomly fails and things like that. And, performance can give you that impression like if if you are waiting for something to happen that shouldn't be slow that is being even a little bit slow it can give you that same feeling of like this isn't working properly or i'm not in full control over this uh one of the features i use a lot and it annoy i i I love the feature and i'm so glad it's there but using it every single week uh well i won't use it this week because i don't need to share notes with you but i use apple notes to share uh, show notes with guests on the podcast and then with uh, Caleb who edits um, 
and we toss things in there like uh, links that I often forget to post, <laughs> title ideas, <laughs> and the interface. Do you use the the shared notes feature in Apple Notes? A little, not a lot. It it's a I, I, it's one of those things where I should. It would be harder to write about. It's like I, I kind of would probably be better as like a YouTube video, but uh, it commits a sort of you. Number one, it's just slow. You go up to the share menu and you like um, you go to share, and then a dialogue comes up. It takes way too long for the dialogue to come. <laughs> up. And again, famously, I know like it, as a user of software. It is generally frowned upon to tell the developer of any particular software that something should be easy to add <laughs> or fix. Right, right? yeah. It, you generally it should take you about a day, right? Explain your problem as politely as you can and let them figure out how easy it how is. How hard could it be? But I, So I'm not trying to violate that rule, but it doesn't seem like opening up the sharing dialogue should take a while. It just takes. It just does not seem snappy enough. But then the part that drives me nuts is I always share it by iMessage, and you hit iMessage, and then the dialog box goes away, <laughs> and then the one that lets you type the iMessage comes up. Oh yeah. And in between, there is no spinner. There's no HUD. It just looks like it <laughs> failed. It looks like you hit message, and. A couple of weeks ago, somebody on Twitter dug up like scans of like the original Apple human interface guidelines from like 1985 or 84, whenever they first published inside Mac. And it was like, like the third page of the interface guidelines specifically said that if, if the user has to wait for something, show accurate, you know, show as accurate a progress as you can, mm -hmm. you know, like ideally show a, um, uh, like a percentage bar, a percentage kind of thing. bar type yeah, thing. Yeah. That, you know the the bar. If you can't, if it is indeterminate, show the watch cursor. You know that was the old weight. The old the old weight cursor was the watch cursor. And if you used a Mac back then, you got used to the watch cursor. Yeah, because it, you know the computers were so slow. But the watch cursor would appear the second you, you were waiting on the computer, and it disappeared the second the moment it was done with whatever. And then and it was always very accurate. Like if you got your arrow cursor back, you knew that it was done. Uh, you know, like talking about spinning hard disks, like you'd hit command S in some apps and you'd have to wait for the watch cursor. Oh, yeah. Well, and again, it's like, like, cause back then computers were so slow that you had to design for waiting from right. the start. Right. Like every app, many features of every app had to be designed right from the beginning for like, the user is going to have to wait for some period of time here. Let's make that obvious and clear and everything else. And modern, like I bet whoever, I bet whatever systems are being invoked by the the delay between that, you know, the, the cloud kit share dialogue and the, you know, message send from the share sheet, that it probably is not even built with the assumption anybody would ever wait for it. And so there is no affordance. There is we don't even have a weight cursor anymore. Like we have the beach ball, which is right. not a good thing. Like you're, that's that's some, that's the sign of something going wrong. Um, you know, but we like Mac OS. I don't think even no. has a weight cursor. No. And no modern OS, as far as I know, does. I don't. I don't know if Windows still has the hourglass, but uh, but like I, I think we're just we just assume the software doesn't make you wait anymore, or if it does, it'll show it in a nice way in its UI. Uh, but anyway, that that dialogue. I mean, there's a lot of problems with it. Like I, so I don't see it as often in Notes. I do see the same dialogue very frequently in photo sharing in the Photos app. Yeah. Um, and it always takes me. First of all, it always takes yeah. me at least two tries 
to even bring up the dialogue because I always I can't find where it. it like, how do I create a shared note or al- or photo album? And I always get it wrong the first time. And then I eventually figure out which button invokes the invite people thing, and it always takes me at least two tries to invite somebody because the link doesn't work or the box just goes away randomly, or I thought I invited them, but I, I didn't actually invite them, or whatever. Like, that whole system is really hard to use, yeah. and surprisingly inconsistent and surprisingly sloppy. Yeah, and it's not clear. It's, it's one of those things that they could use for more labels. Yeah. What, what is this button you keep pushing over here? It's a mute button. So you, you, as soon as you're done talking, you just mute yourself. Yeah, that way you don't, you know, I'm not, like, breathing all over you, and I can, I can take a sip from my cup here without, like, you know, you hearing, like, the water sloshing around. I should probably get one of those. It's pretty great, yeah. <laughs> or rather, it's so it's it's the Rolls MS one eleven. It's it's a totally mediocre mute switch. It's not great, but I have yet to find anything else that works better. Yeah, I like I tried like Dan Benjamin recommends this one. I, th- I forget what it's called. It's like the like cough stop or something like that. And, and I tried it, and it it every time you push it with a condenser mic, it you hear a pop sound. And this is the only one I found that doesn't. But the problem is, it doesn't actually mute it all the way. It only drops like twenty decibels. Hmm. So if I'm muted. uh but but so it's like it's it's good for like you know muting like you know the occasional cough or gas or whatever else but you got you don't want to like you know really yell into it when it's muted because you will be heard (laughs) all right let's take uh one more break here thank our third and final sponsor of this midsummer episode of the show squarespace make your next move with squarespace you need a beautiful website somebody you know needs a nice website do it with squarespace Marco just told the story on ATP, mm-hmm. local establishment. Yep, needed a new website. And I made it for them in one night. <laughs> After being quoted $40,000. Yes, $40,000, which makes sense. Like, you know, it, it isn't that they were being ripped off. Like, if you actually are going to custom develop something as nice as what Squarespace offers for, you know, 20 bucks a month or whatever it is, like, you know, Squarespace offers a ton of functionality with all their plans. And yet, if you go to some some development house and they need to build it, Forty grand is not unreasonable for that amount of functionality. The good thing is you don't have to do that. You can just go to Squarespace and have it for a lot less than that. Uh, so maybe for you, dear listener of the show, you need a website. It would be great. Build it with Squarespace. Try it with Squarespace. Just you know, put an hour into it. Put two hours into it. Um, but especially, I love the angle of keeping Squarespace in your mind for when somebody, friend, family needs a website, and you don't want to be on the hook for updating it. Maintaining it, it, supporting it. Just send them to Squarespace. It's a great price, great customer service, and no coding required. It is a very, very what-you-see-is-what-you-get interface that a totally non-coder could get in there, customize it, tweak it, get it just the way they like with absolutely no coding experience required at all. If you do know how to code, you can get in there, tweak it as much as you want. I, I'm constantly surprised. Uh, sometimes you can you can get into the you can get like a login dialogue on Squarespace sites by hitting the escape key. It you know it's configurable. You don't have to have it on. Um, but every once in a while, like a new restaurant opens in Philly, and I'm a nerd, of course, and I think that's a nice website. And I go up to View Source, and you can look in the headers of the HTML and see if it was made with Squarespace or not. It's absolutely amazing how many new websites from. Just and you know the restaurant business is so so style conscious. They're so everybody you know it's hip new restaurant is supposed to have a beautiful website. Where do you go for more? Squarespace.com slash talk show. Squarespace.com slash talk show. And when you decide to sign up 
Just remember that code talk show and you get 10% off your first purchase. You could purchase up to a year, save 10%. Uh, anything else? What else? I don't know. What else is going on this summer? Oh, uh, what about Dropbox? That's uh, uh, sad. I, so I, I, you guys had a good segment on this Dropbox fiasco. I haven't gotten the new interface yet. I don't know what, I don't know what God you have to piss off to, to get it, but uh, it's been, it's, I thought you had some interesting insight into this, that we, it, when you raise that much venture capital, you kind of eventually, and your valuation is high enough, you've got to suddenly compete with, you're trying to be the next Microsoft. Right. Like you're like all of a sudden, like, you know, you, you raise that amount of money, you, you have this kind of business plan in mind that basically is like you becoming the next office, like the next Microsoft office or, you know, or the next Slack or something. And it's like, and actually like, it's really hard to compete with Microsoft office or with Google docs or these, these like giant collaboration platforms. And that's what Dropbox is trying to be. And ultimately, like, they're not going to succeed. Like, Dropbox is not going to become the next big collaboration platform that's on the level of Microsoft and Google. They just, they're just not. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a really hard market. Even Slack, you know, Slack is trying on some level. Right. And Slack is very successful in, in, you know, where it is now. But, like, I don't think Slack is trying to be the next, like, is, I don't think they're trying to be the replacement for an entire office suite. Yeah. I think they they're doing like their own kind of thing off to the side, whereas Dropbox really does seem like they're trying to replace a lot more than what they are both qualified to do and what they are likely to succeed at doing. I would I would be surprised if Slack came out with a uh, file sharing extension that ran on your Mac without you asking for it that shares a folder. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I, like that you seems know. out of scope for Slack. Yeah. They're, they're, I think one of the keys to Slack's success. And the way that they're they're very well liked. people who use Slack a lot, most people seem to really like it. And I think one of the reasons is because they're focused and they know exactly what they want to do. And boy, it you know Dropbox had that for a while too when it really was just a folder that syncs. I feel like the like Dropbox's major success, as far as I can tell. Granted, I haven't looked into this and I haven't had a real job in a long time, but it seemed like Dropbox's major success was much more on the personal side than on the enterprise side. Yeah. Uh, and it, it it's a very common need for for like you know people to share files with themselves and their friends or a couple of coworkers or something like that. But like it's it, it was very much a a personal success. And but you know it's hard to make money in the personal market. It's especially hard to make big 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 money in the personal market. Like if you're going to raise you know hundreds of millions of dollars and try to be, try to become worth billions of dollars and have like a public stock and everything, you can't just have have the consumer market and that be it. Like unless you're, you know, unless you are massive and incredibly, you know, successful, but that doesn't really happen that that often. Like to to raise that kind of money and to have those kind of growth goals in this kind of market, you need like the big enterprise business accounts. And that, that, I think Slack was very smart by focusing on business stuff right from the start. You know, Slack has always been business focused, and it it has succeeded in businesses up to the up to date. You know, up to today seemingly very well. I mean, I don't know what their financials are and, and what their goals are, but it seems like what they set out to do, they are doing very well. And they were, you know, business focused right from the start. And they have, you know, people do use Slack for personal stuff also, but they they are very, they're operating successfully at what, they, what they're trying to do in business. Whereas Dropbox seemed like it was a really great personal story. Then they realized, oh, we actually want the money from the business or right. want slash need 
the money from the business side of this. So we need to pivot this into more of a business product. But unfortunately, they were already so big at that point that both businesses already weren't taking them seriously and the business software providers were already introducing their own Dropbox-like things. So they were already kind of getting Sherlocked over there on that end. And then also the personal side of things was not interested in what Dropbox was doing. Like all the stuff Dropbox tried to do to push themselves more into business mostly just pisses off their personal customers. Right. And, and so it, I feel like that's why I feel like they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. Like I, I understand what I understand why they're doing what they're doing, given the situation they're in where they've raised all this money. They're trying to become a, a big business thing. And it, it makes sense to do what they're doing now, given those conditions, the real flaw was getting themselves into those conditions in the first place. Like instead of raising all this money and trying to become something really big, they should have, I think they should have stuck with the personal market, but that would have resulted in a smaller company and, a, and smaller finances and everything else. But they, they could have succeeded. They could have been sustainable right. doing that and had a really nice business, but that wasn't what they were going for. Right. It's, you know, uh, you know, uh, overcast isn't trying to be the iTunes music store. Right, you know, daring fireball isn't trying to be the New York Times, you know. And if we tried, we would probably fail. Right, like I have a nice business that supports one employee. Yeah, exactly. Me, <laughs> not that I have anybody else, uh, and that's fine for me. But if I had raised, you know, venture capital, uh, probably probably wouldn't be seen as a good business. Right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Overcast <laughs> would be a terrible return for VCs, as honestly as many podcasting related ventures are, <laughs> as as I think the unfortunate uh, luminary investors are discovering right about now uh, as they they set a hundred million dollars on fire at, to a, a podcast app that seems to have no noticeable market share yeah and i haven't heard uh i haven't really heard anything about it like they, they obviously got a, a decent initial injection of publicity uh based on some of the you know the names of some of the people who are associated with the, the star power and you know, uh, people like to write the hot take of, hey, here's the next big thing in podcasting. It's, you know, the Netflix of podcasting or something like that. That sounds good oh, yeah. as a slogan. People can write whatever articles they want. doesn't make it true. doesn't make yeah. it doesn't actually make it play out that way. Right. Like like we all like a lot of the a lot of the press and especially the business press, you know, they know they can tell podcasting is hot. They want some kind of big platform plays to start happening so that both, you know, the investor side can make a bunch of money and so that, you know, it shakes everything up and gives the press a lot to write about. And, and that's, and that's how other media have played out. So they, they kind of expect the same thing to happen, but the podcast market has shown itself over and over again to not work that way. And that, you know, basically the podcast market has a whole lot of inertia behind keeping things pretty much the way they are. And, that's the most likely outcome here. So yeah. like like you can't you can't try to make a hundred million dollars back in podcasting and expect that to succeed very well with pretty much any kind of effort. Because that isn't the kind of business it is. Similarly, yeah, it's, it's and so it's like, you know, with Dropbox and it's like maybe this whole like, you know, folder that syncs between your computers thing that was mostly for personal use, like that's maybe that shouldn't have ever been a billion dollar business. Yeah, and it's different, you know, there's a, a people have been listening to audio content as long as we've had consumer electronics, you know, used to be called radio, but like the radio market was very different simply because, you know, like Philadelphia had like two classic rock stations, you know? So if you wanted to listen to classic rock, you'd have two choices in a city of millions. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's not really a market for 
like a, a make a lot of money in radio with forty thousand listeners. Right. Yeah. Exactly. You know, it, or you know, and there might be some stations that only have forty thousand listeners because they're rural, or it's truly niche programming or something like that. But they're not making tens of millions of dollars. They're making. Yeah, they're they're supporting like right. a single family or like a small number right. of families. Like it's not it, you're, you're not gonna, yeah it's not going to become a billion dollar business. Uh, did you see the story? I'm sure you did. I think you did. I think you guys even talked about it. But uh, Bloomberg had a story a couple weeks ago. Speaking of paid podcasting, that Apple is supposedly working on backing, you know, doing their own luminary type thing. I guess. Yeah, it was very light on the details. Very, it was, very light. The, the actual like meat of the story was basically. Some people are saying that Apple is thinking about doing something like this, <laughs> which is yeah. very much like there's nothing, there's not much there there, and it definitely fits with the their the the story they've been selling Wall Street for two years about services. And I'm not saying it's a bill of goods. They obviously they report the money, and the services business is absolutely growing. Um, so I'm not saying that they're that they're not actually focused on growing services and they had a services event just earlier this year where they've talked about you know the apple news and apple arcade and uh obviously the new tv stuff which is you know probably the highest profile um i i don't know about podcasts though like and and like I, and I don't know that it's something they have to do, right? And they already have Apple Music. Yeah. Like, how many things do they want us to subscribe to? And would it be like, you know, if you already have Apple Music, you get the podcasts for free? But yeah, it, why think, music? Wouldn't it be? Yeah. Would it? You know, what or would it be part of News Plus? Right. Maybe? Like, would, it, podcasts don't really fit into any of the other subscription ones, right? It's not yeah, really I think news. music would be the most obvious one. Or if they ever did do like a big bundle. It would just be one right. of the many things you'd get from the bundle. Right, when you get but, the Apple bundle. Yeah, it would be hard to have it stand on its own. I mean, this is one thing, and one of the reasons why, you know, it, you know, Apple's presence in podcasting is massive. Like, they have this huge market share. They run by far the most important and biggest directory that a lot of apps, including mine, actually search against. Um, you know, their, their client has, you know, by far the biggest listenership. Um, Apple is podcasting to a large degree. Uh, and so for them to try anything like this that like introduces content that's maybe locked down to them or you know requires a paid subscription although I, actually i think one thing that i think jason snell brought up is like i think it would actually be more damaging to the ecosystem if it was free right <laughs> like, if right. it was like you could listen to these free podcasts but only an apple podcast and not in any other, any other apps like mine like right. that would actually be i think significantly more damaging um but you know ultimately even though they have all this power like I forget whether I've said this on a podcast yet, but like, so, so for years I've been, I, I was noodling the idea in the back of my head of like doing a kind of like readability thing for podcasts of like you pay, suppose you'd pay overcast like 20 bucks a month and I would split it out in, and pay the podcast you listen to if they participated in this thing. I'd like, you know, share revenue share with all of them and I would take like, you know, 10% for the running it or whatever. And I, I talked, I ran this idea by a bunch of podcasters a few years ago, big and small um friends and and you know non-friends like so you know they wouldn't be too biased 
and everyone basically said the same thing like no it isn't worth it because like i guess i would take your money but i would never promote promote it because i have my own method of monetization on you know I, I, whether they have the listenership or right. they have memberships or they have private feeds or they do ads I, or I, patreons or whatever. i seem to recall telling you this <laughs> yeah everyone <laughs> I'm did pretty sure yeah pretty sure you asked me yeah i probably did right. like I, I asked every podcaster i knew plus like some of like you know the big ones and and they all were very gracious with their time and basically said like yeah, I would take your money, but I wouldn't promote it because I, I don't want I don't want other people getting in the way of me making my money. But anyway, assuming a program like that could exist, think I, I, I so I ran the numbers and I, I and I kind of I kind of came to the conclusion that even if I could get everyone to do it, whatever that like you know ten percent that I would take, whatever it would be, it just wouldn't be enough money to make it worth the hassle and overhead of running this kind of program and right. distributing all this money, handling everyone's finances. Like that's that it's a lot of burden and it's a lot of messiness and the amount of money I would, I would likely make from it, assuming certain like, you know, conservative percentages of how many people would want to pay and everything. It just wasn't enough money to make it worth it to me. But as a thought exercise, I, uh, a few months back, I'd, I'd thought like, well, I know my market share and I know Apple's market share. So I extrapolated what would Apple make by running a program like this if they wanted to do something like this where you pay Apple some service fee and they split it up kind of like they do with News Plus. They split it up to the podcast you listen to and pay them like if you listen within Apple's app. What if they ran a program like this? How much money would they make? And I forget the number I came up with, but it was it was something like a couple of million dollars a year. Hmm. And it's like it just wasn't enough doesn't move the needle like, for them. Yeah, for them, a couple million dollars a year, it would be definitely not worth the administration of running such a program. Like the all the costs involved in like pay, in like paying all those podcasters out and dealing with them all and dealing with the signups and dealing with the people and, and like the mar- having to market this kind of thing to people to get them to buy the subscriptions in the first place and the engineering behind it. Like it, it's so much effort to run such a program. Podcasts, while they are very while it's a very big market for the content side of things. The platform side of things, it's hard to get enough people, especially paying people, to really make big money as a platform. It like podcasting simply isn't big enough yet, and it, it may it may never be. Like you know, it it, it may, it well, may end up being like it, talk radio. Like talk it, radio kind of capped out. You know, like it, it, talk radio is not still growing. It kind of capped out at like a natural point where like this is just how many people want this kind of thing, and that's it. Podcasting is still growing, but not incredibly quickly like maybe maybe has already capped out maybe it's maybe it's mostly done growing or maybe it's almost mostly maybe it's almost done growing and so the even even having their giant market share trying to get people to pay for something on a large scale as the platform owner doesn't really pay it's not really the math doesn't work out very well for a company that big to have a meaningful you know pay rate and to make meaningful money from from paid podcast now it, it the, the economics change when you are the content provider like if you're trying to do the platform play where you take 10 percent or 30 percent of everything you know that's it's hard to make enough money there to matter but if you are making the 70 percent or the 90 percent of that then your economics change so like it does make sense for a lot of individual podcasts to have a paid you know premium tier where they make most of the money from from their listeners and everything that economics are totally different that often works out and that's why there are so many of those but on the platform side it doesn't make a ton of sense for them to be like a like a, a pay everyone kind of solution but this rumor wasn't about that this rumor was about them making exclusive content and 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 you know presumably tying it behind some kind of paywall uh and so from that like the the math could work on that for them but again i i think it would be at, I think it would be most likely to be an add-on to Apple Music or something, not a standalone thing. 
well, uh, while we're on this topic of podcasts, I, I know you and I have talked about this before. I, I find one of the strangest things about the podcast ecosystem is Apple's outsized dominance in market share because they're, I mean, I mean, I would presume you, you would actually know this, but I presume most people who use Apple podcasts, listen on their phone. Uh, people certainly use the, I, you know, the Mac versions. I know, you know, people definitely use that. Um, but there's this thing called Android, which has <laughs> greater worldwide market share than the iPhone. And yet, even though Google has made some steps, you would think that's a business Google would want to be in, right? Like, well, demographically, um, I mean, you know, there there are podcast players on Android, right? Google, I think, has made three of them so far, and they just don't take <laughs> off. They don't go anywhere, right? Um, I I think you know what you're seeing here is, is something that um, that you know I think a lot of people either don't see or don't want to say, uh, but that the Android market is different from the iPhone market, demographically speaking. And the the demographics of people who listen to podcasts are significantly tilted towards higher income, better educated, more liberal people. And those are the opposite demographics that Android tends to be tilted towards. Right. So what you see is even though Android has a larger market share of like devices worldwide – that it isn't so evenly spread, or it isn't. It, it's the opposite for podcast listeners. Right. Podcast listeners so far are significantly in favor of uh, iOS. So there's actually there's um, our friends over at Libsyn. Libsyn is a huge podcast host, been around forever. They host tons and tons of podcasts, big and small, including I believe both of these podcasts. Right? Mine no, I'm still on SoundCloud. Oh, geez, you got to get off SoundCloud. Well, anyway, <laughs> at least including ATP. And I have a lot of I have a lot of accumulated CMS data. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really do. Oh God, I can't believe SoundCloud is still hosting podcasts. Anyway, um, but uh, but for everyone else who, who's on Libsyn, they they do a podcast called The Feed, where uh, where where two people from Libsyn uh, talk about you know podcast trends and how to and everything. And part of that show every month is that they share data about user agents and how what percentage of of libsyn's network-wide downloads are going to you know podcast clients like mine and apple's and they also break it down by platform like android versus ios and the the android to ios ratio has been shrinking over time it used to a couple years ago i think it was like seven or eight to one in favor of ios Uh, and now it's closer to like three to one or four to one but it's still like that's still you know ios to have like you know three to one advantage over Android for for podcast network podcast downloads across this entire network that hosts a huge variety of shows, so it's I think it's probably pretty representative of the yeah, market as a whole. Yeah. Um, that is totally out of whack with the actual market share of those platforms uh, in a hardware sense. You would think it would be more like Chrome and Safari, right? Yeah, it's like like you would think based on Android's market share, you would think that android would outnumber iphone downloads something like two to one right uh, but instead it's the opposite direction and it's iphone outnumbering android like three to one for podcast downloads so it it's very much a demographic difference between those two platforms and i think that's part of the reason among some others but that's, that's part of the reason i think why google has had no meaningful success having their own big podcast app on android um here's my stats for my show overcast is number one but our audience is yeah, our, our, our audience is not representative. Uh, three times the market share of Apple Core Media iPhone, which is listening on the iPhone. But they list iTunes separately, so that's another 4%, 4% or so. Yeah, um, desktop iTunes is not 
meaningful market share most for most podcasts. Uh, the only one, the only other third party well, Pocket Casts is about one fifth the size of of iPhone Apple's iPhone client. Uh, Castro's in the top ten. It's a great app, uh, but really, it's all just rounding errors after yeah. after iTunes or Apple's podcast app and Overcast. Fun fact: According to Livson Stats, Castro has more market share than Luminary. <laughs> it's, it's, somehow that feels good. It really does. Actually, I'm very happy with that. All right, we got to wrap this up. This is probably the shortest Marco Arman appearance <laughs> on the talk show in history. Yeah, probably. Uh, but I think we're out of stuff. I think we and we gotta. We have. We have. We probably should go to dinner. Friends and family who are waiting for us to go to dinner, so yeah. we should wrap it up. Marco, I'm glad, I'm happy to be here. I'm, 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 I want to say thank you for inviting me and my family to your home. And thank you for taking time out of a vacation week to do, the, to do my show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun, as right. usual. I always like it. It's always fun to do a show in person. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, I guess I should thank our sponsors. Yep. <laughs> Squarespace. <laughs> Linode. Linode. And Fracture. And Fracture. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, before my pop- podcast amnesia kicks in. <laughs> exactly. And we'll see you next week. And we'll see. Well, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. I might need a break. <laughs> yeah. We've done a lot of shows. Yeah. <laughs> See you in a couple weeks. Yeah. <laughs>